Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9, right here at the New York Stock Exchange. Front and center, the Q2 playbook, where your money is going to work best in the months ahead. Whether that surprise OPEC move changes the game for the energy trade as well, and what lies ahead for tech. The investment committee debating all of that. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Joe Terranova, Sarat Sethi, and Steve Weiss. Let's check the markets. Uh, it's been an interesting session. Dow is doing quite well. Uh, no surprise given what Chevron means to that. United Health, a big story today. We're going to get to all of that in a minute. By the way, famed energy trader Mark Fisher is going to join us exclusively in a few moments to talk about that move in crude today, how he suggests you should trade it. But Liz, I go to you first. I mean, we first day of the Q2, uh, do cyclicals continue to lag? Does tech continue to lead, even as the NASDAQ is pretty much at session lows right now? So how should we set the stage here for what lies ahead? Look, I think actually this week is setting up to maybe be kind of quiet in the equity market in the sense that we don't have earnings starting. Way to go, Liz. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sorry. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, We don't have earnings starting yet. If we get a jobs report that's kind of a non-event on Mm -hmm. Friday, maybe nothing really happens. We're at this point where we're waiting for economic data. We're waiting for earnings data to either confirm or deny what we're all afraid of, right? And I don't know that we're going to get a whole lot that's going to happen in between now and Friday. Uh, When earnings heat up, maybe all bets are off. But I think this tech run could continue for a few more days. However, however, I would probably fade it. Okay, so, Joe, if it only lasts a few more days, if Liz is, in fact, right about that, what does that mean then? For, for, the, for the overall market? Well, first of all, on Friday, we're all off. So I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday is going to be particularly volatile as we try and handicap what the news is going to be on Friday, get ahead of that positioning, because very quickly you're going to turn to the other side of the weekend, and guess what's coming then? Inflation and earnings. So I think there is going to be a strong amount of activity this week. I also think right now the market's rallying on two things. It's rallying on sentiment and seasonals. And I do think that can continue over the next several weeks. I believe that you will see a little bit of a mean reversion in performance, Mm -hmm. value relative to growth, healthcare, energy, industrials, materials relative to technology. I don't think we're gonna lose the technology trade at all. Growth has clearly over the last month made a return once again, Mm -hmm. again on positioning. So I I think the setup is we've been in this range 3,800 to 4,200 since November. The market appears as though it wants to go to the top end of the range and see if it could poke its head above it. We're going to get back to energy in a second, so I don't want you to go deep there. But I do want to ask you, um, isn't this a reminder, if nothing else, of the inflationary pressures that are Uh still out there? There are variables around the globe in different sectors that can still come back to bite you 
And energy going back up north of $80 a barrel is one of those things. Okay. Ready? The viewers are probably going to shake their heads at this, and you might as well. I don't look at the news over the weekend and say, ooh, I'm worried about inflation. You know what I see? I see further pressure and contraction. I see rising interest expenses. I see tightening credit. And now I see rising oil expense on the consumer. It is very clear to me. The market today is focused on what? The market is focused on the contraction in the ISM manufacturing. A two-year treasury was 4.13. We're right around 4%. Got down to 396 yeah, before. Down. So I think the news of the weekend, weekend rather signals that there's going to be more stress on consumers and on the enterprise sector. And I think that's going to ultimately lead to a Q3 that's going to look pretty ugly economically. So, Surat, I mean, let's, let's remember where we came into this quarter as, you know, last week ended and we're thinking about what lies ahead. Part of the rally, in part, had to be predicated on the view that the Fed was going to pause, that, you know, significant enough concerns exist still within the banking system in places and within the credit spectrum overall that they're not going to be able to put the foot to the floor to the degree at which they once suggested they might. How do we think about that today? So I think that's what the market's saying, and that's why your long-duration assets actually had a rally, because basically implicit in what you were just saying is we're not going to be really raising rates as much as the market thinks. We've already got some contraction. We've already got credit contracting. Add to what happened this weekend, basically what, the, what OPEC is doing is we just want to maintain our prices. And, and I think prices were going down so fast, so quickly. So where we are now is kind of really looking to what Liz was saying was, we thought we would be here in the first quarter. Now we're really trying to see, is this just being the, the can kick down the road with earnings slowing down okay. and the consumer slowing down? So let down. me ask you this. Do we focus more? If we came in thinking, okay, Fed pause is in part what led stocks to have a, a pretty good first quarter. Do we focus on that? Or do we focus on the fact that Earnings are probably going to be tough, and the economy itself is going to continue to slow. So even with the Fed pause, you know, if you march a little bit closer towards a recession that people still think is a base case at minimum, what does that mean? It means you focus on earnings, and you focus on companies that are going to have strong cash flow and have strong positions. And I think that's where you want to get a little more defensive with the healthcare sector, the staple sector, you know, areas where there's going to be cash flow and there's going to be less margin degrading, you know, degrading than, than there is on other sectors. All right, Weiss. So what's the, what's the story here? Cooperman today on Squawk Box, I have an overall cautious view. I think uh, he obviously is channeling what you've been saying too. You, you have been cautious. Here we have a new quarter. Do we have any new optimism, if you will, from you? We don't, <laughs> sadly <laughs> said. Uh, look, I, I still think it's going to be you know, where we are, I agree, it could be a quiet week. We've got some important data next week. And the market always tends to want to go up, except when it's got a reason not to. And the reason not to will be clear-cut evidence that earnings come down. Already, since the beginning of the year, you've seen the multiple expand to 18 times coming into today, while you've seen earnings cuts for the first quarter of over 6%, about 6.5%, which is twice normal. So that makes no sense, particularly when the first quarter is not setting the bottom. 
that the Fed is starting, the Fed actions are starting to take effect. They're starting to impact the economy. So I've got to believe there are going to be more estimate cuts. So right now we're about 220 in the S&P. I think we go down to at least 200. And will you continue to have that multiple expansion? Effectively, you will if the market stays in place. I don't think that'll be the case. You think tech continues to lead? Um, I, I, I do, except it'll take these hits along the way. But clearly, people have to be invested. A certain segment of investors have to be invested. So where are they going to go? They can go to where there's free cash flow. They're going to go where there are balance sheets. Uh-huh. They're going to go where there's predictable earnings growth in a declining economy. You included among where are they going to go, right. considering the moves that you had made last week. Yeah. Do you have any updates on the positioning? We, jo- we joked yeah. about, yeah. you know, you, you likely being a short timer in some of those, but where where do we stand now? I'm thinking so, you added Meta. Yeah, was, yeah. It, was it Meta? I added Meta. Uh, the cues. Uh, the cues are done. Okay. They're, they're gone. Okay. Um, but Meta, yeah, I'm still in Meta, okay. and so it allows me to participate in a stock that's not very expensive, by the way. I think it's kind of cheap. Sure, I think they're spending too much money, even though they've cut back. But on a relative basis, I think they're okay. And guess what? If TikTok does get banned, then you've got an uptick from TikTok being banned as they pick up more share. So, Liz, I know you said you'd fade tech. Wolf is discussing this in you know their, their notes today. Uh, reinflating the NASDAQ bubble. Can it last, as they ask? Downside catalysts are coming, to your point about why you might want to fade it. But as always, timing is everything. And the wait can be painful, exclamation point, right? Those who say there's no reason why tech should be up this much. These stocks are going to pull back. Well, I mean, good luck waiting for it. Now, it may happen. But as they say, the wait can be painful. Yeah. Well, you don't have to fade it all at the same minute, right? You can fade it systematically. And Mm -hmm. that's what I would recommend right now, especially ahead of earnings season. Now, I want to be clear, though. It's possible that tech does not need to make new lows, even if we go into a recession, because this year is really about a cyclicality recession fear. It's not about rates anymore. So even if there is a pullback, I do think tech gives some of this rally back, but it may not be that they're the worst hit. I still think it's probably cyclicals that are the worst hit in that scenario. But if you've enjoyed the run-up in tech, the one that I certainly didn't see coming, I don't think many people saw coming for the first quarter, if you've enjoyed it, Take that little gift, take some of your gains off the table, and get ready to redeploy them if what I think is going to happen does come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Redeploy them into those cyclicals if and when they get hit really hard, and you might get better entry points on tech along the way. Why is this such a critical question, Joe? Because essentially all of the S&P 500's gain in the first quarter is due to five stocks. Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Tesla, Meta. You're you're so top-heavy. Now, that was fixed a little bit last week. It but was. Do you have any indication that more cyclical plays are about to pick up some of the slack if technology stocks can't continue to lead as robustly as they have? I could see if the market continues to move higher towards the top end of the range that we see a mean reversion for performance from materials, from healthcare, from energy, from industrials. I think overall, though, a lesson will be learned in terms of your positioning towards technology and the mega caps. Clearly, at the end of the year, positioning went to an underweight level for mutual funds and hedge funds that we have not witnessed in multiple decades. That's how significant the positioning went to an underweight. So I think the lesson will be learned 
I think that money managers will be afraid to make that type of return and positioning there once again. Mm -hmm. And I think from that perspective, we'll be able to kind of maintain a lot of the gains. And to Steve's point, I think you'll see a return uh, at some point where technology takes the lead. Okay. Uh, and we're obviously going to watch to see whether, you know, what we're seeing in energy today uh, has legs for energy stocks. Chevron, I told you, is one of the best performers out of the Dow today, second to United Health. Speaking of our chart of the day, there it is, the animation plays because we want to show you it's energy, oil. Look at oil, up 6%. So it's back north of 80 bucks. The famed oil trader Mark Fisher joins us now on the phone to help us assess what's happened here with OPEC, this surprise cut, what it means for oil itself, the energy trade in general. Fish, welcome back. It's good to talk to you. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm gathering that you were as surprised as, as most with this move no. by OPEC? Not really. I mean, I think that the Henry, I didn't know what was going to happen, obviously, this weekend or whatever. But, you know, I think that, you know, just like the FT said, I think that the U.S. said that the, if the price of oil had gone down to 70 ish or so, that they would come back and buy the SPR. I think people were patient to see whether or not the U.S. was going to do that. When the U.S. didn't do that, OPEC said, okay, we're going to cut. I mean, it's pretty, you know, you can really band oil if you went ahead and said every time it gets near the 70, we're going to. Wait, hold on a second. Wow, I'm buying a seat price. Hold on. It's really, it's really easy when oil is at 70 bucks if you're going to support the price. And at ninety dollars, you make you know, you incentivize everyone to produce, right? But you tell everyone at ninety dollars that they have to you know max out, and then when the price falls, you know because of uh, weather, economy, and you don't do what you say, this is what OPEC does. And eventually, the same thing is going to happen in natural gas because natural gas is up two dollars, which you know all the producers are eventually going to cut back on capex. We're going to have the same show a year or two from now in that gas when all this LNG has to be exported. And we don't have enough production to you, to export it to. So, so <laughs> you think show. this is you think this is direct retaliation, if you want to use that word, by the Saudis and others as a result of the Biden administration not buying from the or not refilling the SPR when oil had a six handle on it not that long ago. It, it doesn't it doesn't even mean that they had to buy a lot. It's just you know even a, a, a little bit of it, right? And I, call, I wouldn't call it retaliation. You know, this is just business. You're going to go ahead. And, and, and produce more at 90, then you're going to cut back on production at 70. If you're going to go ahead and, like refiners, you know, the reason why there's no more refiners being built in this country is because forgetting about all the, the paperwork and the bureaucracy and the environmental concerns, but who's going to produce, create, create, build a new refinery when you know that the government's trying to put you out of business? If the government said, okay, guess what? We know the, 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 you know, the, the life cycle of, of, in order to make back the money in refineries 20, 25 years, and, it, and, we're going to recognize that. And even if we shut you down seven, eight years from now, we're going to go ahead and pay you after the 25 years. You get all the Warren Buffett's of the world to go ahead and, and produce as much as they possibly could and, and build new refiners. You, the last time you, actually you weren't actually on, but you had told me um, privately that oil should be bought at 65 and sold at 85 and that it's gonna pretty much remain in that range. Now, first question, do you think this news upsets that range? And then what happens if oil approaches the $85 level, which it may, you know, who knows, it's at $80.20 as we speak now. How would you assess both of those questions? I would think there would be pressure from everyone to, to, to reduce more. I mean, you lower inflationary expectations if you can ban the commodity you know, where 65 is the bottom and 85 is the top. When you have wild cards where 
you know, you can have, you know, uh, because of a lack of production or because of weather, you know, prices spiked above 100 and then prices go below 65 you know, in the 50s. Then, you know, it, it upsets, you know, how you budget stuff. And, and, and again, you know, it, it, you know, I always say if you, win, if you get 70% of you want in an argument, you win. So if, if the U.S. isn't comfortable with $75 oil, you know, then, then they're going to have these swings back and forth. I think that this is not retaliation. I just think this is just business. Speaking of, what, what are you doing within that business um, today? You're, you've been pretty nimble in the way you've now, you know, we, moved in, we, either we, in or out. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we were long. We got out most of our stuff last week. Okay, we, we lost some stuff. Because move up. We lost, you know, natural gas. You know, you have a huge roll coming up in the next week or so, you know, um, between all the ETFs and everything. So I'm not really sure how that's going to play out. But eventually, natural gas is going to face the same dilemma as crude oil does. Cap, you know, they're going to cut back CapEx. This year, there's, not really, there's really not that much demand for increased LNG. Next year, the after, there is. And how is the how are we going to supply that LNG? Higher prices, unless we increase product, unless we increase capex, which means you don't increase capex when prices are approaching two bucks. Yeah, wow, it's it's been a stunning slide uh, to watch Nat Gas. Mark, I appreciate you calling in. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to discuss this on the desk. Uh, but that's Mark Fisher. Thank you very much. Uh, he, of course, that famed energy trader uh, knows the oil market, Joe, as you know uh, better than most. What do you think of his assessment? What is your own about how you would trade it from here? Every so often you get lucky, you get a life preserver. And I think for someone who's overweight energy, you got a life preserver today. Now what you do over the next month is you see if a trend can develop where potentially price can break out above $85 or not. We're also going to have an upcoming uh, earnings season in which we'll hear from energy companies. And energy companies are going to be reporting where the average price for a spot barrel of oil in the first quarter was $75.99. That's the lowest spot price for oil since the third quarter of 2021. To put it in context, one year ago, Q1 of 2022, we were talking about a $92 price point. So you've got this life preserver, and, and that's the way I look at this, where it allows you to see if you get the evolution of a positive technical trend, if you get supporting and concurrent strong fundamentals. If you're sitting on the sidelines and you do not have energy exposure right now, there's three names that I would focus on where I think that you'll be able to uh, buy these companies and navigate through that process even if the fundamentals and technicals don't line up. And those three companies would be ExxonMobil, Diamondback Energy, and Hess. Those are three names that I would play Full disclosure, uh, the ETF owns all three. I would avoid the refiners because there is potential pressure on refiners as the price of crude oil continues to move higher. So I would not, I would not be focusing on refiners. I look at those three names. Okay, uh, Sarat, what about you? You've got Apache, Chevron, which is you know clearly, as I mentioned, the second best performer in the Dow today. EOG and, and Pioneer. Yeah, what I like about especially the, the, the last three you mentioned was the production that these companies are doing is now limited. They've been very focused on how much they're spending on CapEx and they've been very focused on cash flow. So what this gives these companies chances to actually go out, hedge their positions, make a lot more money, either buy back shares or increase their dividends. So for the oil stocks that are not out there spending a lot of money, which most are because they've learned their discipline, I think you're getting an opportunity to add more if you don't own it. We've been, you know, we're slightly overweight on the position for energy and we like 
you know, what we're seeing today. Liz, you've liked energy for the year to begin with. Does this give you newfound hope, if, if you will, that this trade, which caught a lot of people by surprise by not working, is actually going to? Yeah, well, it caught people by surprise for a couple of reasons. Number one is I think we all thought there was a floor on it that the Biden administration would step in and buy. Uh, I think we discussed this last week on the show. They didn't have money to buy, so they haven't been able to actually execute on that. I still think I like energy for the year. I still think that even if we do head into a recession, will oil prices suffer? Will energy stocks suffer because they're guilty by association as a cyclical? Yes. However, I think that floor actually does hold up later in the year when we pass the debt ceiling and we can actually purchase energy again in order to refill the SPR. So I think that there is a chance that energy does okay this year in a year where otherwise things might be pretty beat up. Okay. So Weiss, I don't want you to comment on energy, but I do want you to comment on what is the top performer out of the Dow today, and that's United Health. I mentioned it at the top of the show being as such. Um, you bought that stock. I did. Why? I did. So I've been talking about the last couple of weeks that I want an opportunity to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, and healthcare is my pick for the year, profitable healthcare. So, uh, so I was, I've been reading a lot on it. Every analyst is very negative on it, in expectation that CMS would come out with rate cuts of uh, maybe 3% as much, um, except Morgan Stanley had a tactical buy piece seasonally. So I bought some on Friday. It was a very small position that I bought. Bought a little more this morning. CMS actually came out, as they often do, with some nice rate increases that surprised the street. So the sentiment, just to recap, very, very negative. I thought it was a low probability then that that sentiment would be realized at that point. And I knew rates were coming out. There's no secret to that. So I initiated a position. At this point, I wait for it to pull back a little bit before I fill out the position. Okay, it is a big winner, as you see there, uh, helping to account for what is, uh, you know, pretty good gain, 230 some odd points for the Dow today. Straight ahead, it's our call of the day, an upgrade for one chip stock. The analyst behind it says he hates the call, which is why we'll discuss it coming up. And later, the deal of the day on this merger Monday of sorts, Endeavor merging UFC with WWE. It's a $21 billion deal. Uh, I sat down exclusively with Endeavor's Ari Emanuel, the WWE's Vince McMahon. The interview is straight ahead. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. There are shares of Intel uh, 
not doing anything on that call of the day today for us. It's Bernstein, Stacey Raskin, throwing in the towel, if you want to call it that, on his bear case for Intel, if you want to call it that, too. He's not necessarily throwing in the towel on his bear case either. Um, he raises it to market perform from underperform. Quote, we hate this call, but think it's the right one. While things look bad, tactically, we believe the medium term setup is finally improving a bit. Don't get us wrong. Things still look ugly here. So, Weiss, I mean, that's about as half-hearted, no-hearted move you could make uh, from an analyst regarding a upgrade. Yeah, I'm... I don't ever recall such a pissed off <laughs> upgrade <laughs> begrudgingly. Look, I, I looked at I've been looking at it on the news. And I come to the conclusion it's still much too expensive with much too uncertain future in a huge CapEx cycle in front of it. So I don't really see any reason to own it. There are you know, some stocks that are significantly beaten up that you can go to, whether it's a Skyworks or, or even a Corvo or Qualcomm that uh, I think will return to growth a lot quicker and justify the valuation more Sur- so than this one. Surat, you don't, you don't own Intel, but Stacey Raskin, by the way, is going to be on with me on Closing Bell today at 3 o'clock to discuss this further. He was with me last week where he said, quote, for Intel, not getting worse is almost as good as getting better. So, okay, so maybe he thinks the absolute worst is over, but... He clearly thinks that there is a long road ahead. And I think when you have a long road ahead, and the biggest thing for Intel is this CapEx cycle, and it's really the operating leverage you get out of it. I'll rather own companies that have IP and not that much CapEx is why I own Qualcomm and NVIDIA. I think you've got some time here, uh, especially as we see the market being choppy, and if tech is going to pull back, I just don't see Intel separating itself from the rest of the pack. There's no catalyst here for the next three to six months for it to kind of rise up. You know, part of the problem is, is the chart, as you're looking at it now. Well, wait a second. Look at the, from from left to right. I know know it's down a ton. However, the chart is the reason for the optimism. So, well, (laughs) I I don't want, listen, I don't want to own the stock. There's there's nothing fundamentally that gets me excited about it. But I'll tell you this. If you're a technician and you look at this stock, it breaks out above the 200-day moving average last week for the first time in two years. So you have a lot of people that are talking about the chart. I heard Jim Cramer last week talk about, look at the chart of Intel. There are people, quantitative in their nature, that follow that stuff. And that's probably the reason that if you want to find some degree of optimism surrounding Intel, you could do it in what's perceived to be a little bit of a technical breakout. Unless you could could easily say, though, well, any inkling of good news albeit incremental, is already in the stock. And it's, it's run a lot with tech. And if anything within this space, and by the way, the chips have had a good quarter too. Sure have. Um, if anything out of that group is not sustainable, it may be the chips. And this might be, you know, public investor enemy number one. Intel is very low on my list of stocks uh, in the semi-industry that I would want to own. Um, NVIDIA, you know, I'm looking at a chart of an NVIDIA. Am I going to get a chance to buy NVIDIA below 150 again? That's laughable. No, I don't think I am. But do you want to buy it after it's already? Of course. Everyone, every, if, well, it's, no. if it's already gone up the way it has? Oh, uh, but I'm not afraid of price. I've never been afraid of price. Um, I believe that. You're a friend of momentum. I'm a friend of momentum. So, yes, I would buy it. I would buy it up here. And I, and I think I said in the fall, and I've been consistent with it, I believe the semis, which were first into this, you know, valuation contraction, yeah. I think they're the first out. I see your, I mean, the the look on your face, (laughs) 
Weiss, as Joe is going through that whole thing is, is interesting. Well, can you tell us what you were thinking as he was, if there was a bubble? No, I those can't tell you bubbles? exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, but I, you know, price to price momentum, that's legitimate investment strategy. But how do you think about the valuation? I mean, valuation can't just keep going and going and going. You're already at ridiculous levels for valuation. So you think the market continues to ignore so it? So if I'm, if I'm going to make the turn and look at fundamentals, I'm more um, focused on what the revenue growth is, what's the return on equity, what's the debt to equity. You know, the, the, the valuation story is a story that's been so uh, convoluted and conflicted over the last 20 years. You can make the argument that valuation in certain stocks matters, and then mm -hmm. there, there are other stocks where the valuations never mattered. And you look at it logically and you say to yourself, how does it trade at that valuation? And not only does it continue trading at the valuation, but the valuation goes beyond yeah, but what's you could, logical. I yeah, know, but, but you could, there's a difference to right, be but made. When you're, a classic I was going to say that. NVIDIA and Amazon. Well, you could say that, but you can't make as, a compelling, as compelling an argument for the valuation of Intel and equate it to, well, look I'm at those. Not, I'm not making, listen. I'm not, I know you're not comparing it to in, Intel fundamentally. I, no I mean, uh, of, to NVIDIA I fundamentally. No in, I want no part of Intel. I've, I've, uh, all I said was there's an explanation as to why someone could oh, yeah, no, finally agreed. have some optimism about the stock. And it's, it's reflected it's just in my discipline. I don't want to buy it. My discipline's yeah. more value or GARP. You know, growth at reasonable prices. It's not just purely. You bought the cues last week on momentum. What's that? You bought the cues last week on momentum. Yeah, I did. Which was I great. Did. I did. The cues right. aren't as overvalued as, as Nvidia, by the way. But just don't dismiss momentum then. No, I'm not saying I didn't dismiss. Okay. It. I said momentum is an investment strategy. I started by saying that. Okay. It's not my strategy. My strategy is based more on valuation, and that's what I look at. I'm not just buying because it keeps going up. Okay. Okay. All right, up next, we have your ETF playbook as we kick off the second quarter. And as we go to break, take a look at the Dow. It's up 235 right now, led today by United Health. Obviously, Chevron as oil has a big jump. We're back after this. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag GradeMyTrade. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Pippa Stevens, and here's your news update at this hour. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says Finland will become the military alliance's 31st member on Tuesday. He also hopes Sweden will finalize its membership in the next few months. That as NATO continues to support Ukraine's fight against Russia. Meanwhile, Russia said it could bolster its forces as needed along the Finland border. Defense lawyers for detained American journalists have appealed his court arrest, according to a Moscow court. The Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich was arrested last week in Russia on what many are calling unwarranted espionage charges. He's currently imprisoned for two months pending further investigation. It's the first time since the Cold War that an American reporter has been held on spying charges. President Biden has called on Russia to, quote, 
let him go. And the highly anticipated next chapter of the popular Indiana Jones franchise will, will premiere at the Cannes Film Festival on May 18th. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny once again stars Harrison Ford and is likely to be the final movie of the series. It'll hit U.S. theaters on June 28th. Scott, back to you. All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you so much. All right, now to our Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scotty. The first quarter has ended with huge inflows into Treasury bonds and bond ETFs. But the Russian, the higher-yielding bonds may not be over. Let's talk about bonds in the second quarter with Chris Concanon. He's just become the CEO of Market Access. It's an electronic trading platform that allows professionals to trade corporate bonds and other types of fixed income investments. Chris, uh, overall here, quite amazing. Treasury ETFs, $45 billion in inflows in the first quarter. Corporate and high yield, they had outflows. Oceans of money are going into Treasury bonds and Treasury ETFs right now. Is this going to continue? This is real competition for stocks. Stocks had outflows uh, in the first quarter. Are we going to see this tidal wave continuing to go into Treasury ETFs? Well, I, I think we are. And first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I think we're just at the beginning of massive inflows into fixed income, uh, particularly in the ETF market. Uh, if you think about some of the trends that we've seen over the years, we're, we're, we're just finishing a historically long bull market. And uh, typically, there's challenges for stocks when you go through that cycle. And bonds are suddenly very attractive investment vehicles. Yeah, it's very, though, unusual to see this kind of ocean of money. We haven't seen this in years and years going into treasuries in general. What, what are the challenges uh, of investing money in this kind of environment? What, what are the challenges of doing that when you have oceans of money coming in? Is there an issue figuring out where to put it all and how to deal with it? I think 10 years ago, there would have been an issue. But today, both the ETF market and the underlying bond market is just prepared for this kind of investment. And so I think the electronic trading that we offer at Market Access allows our investor clients, uh, largest 2,000 of the largest in institutional investors on the planet, trade on Market Access. So it allows them to trade bonds efficiently more than ever before. Yeah, you know, you run a firm that specializes in electronic trading of bonds. That's what Market Access does. Is this huge increase in trading in bonds and bond ETFs, is, is that accelerating electronic trading? Because this happened here on the floor of the NYSE 25 years ago. It's still an issue in the bond trading market. Are we seeing more electronic bond trading now? Well, we're going through the same evolution that the, the stock market went through. 20 years ago, we saw people on the floor here and paper tickets on the ground. Uh, the bond market's going through that same revolution of electronic trading, and market access sits at the center of that bond market, and we're growing regularly uh, because of the adoption of electronic trading. Yeah, I see your stock is right near a 52-week high. We're going to talk about that more at the top of the show. There's going to have much more on bond investing in the second quarter. It's coming up on ETF Edge. That's at 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. Chris will be joined by Alex Morris. He's the president and CEO of FM Investments. They just caught a wave last year with the introduction of the first single bond ETFs they're now expanding that lineup. Also joining Alex, Tom Lighton, Vice Chairman of Vetify. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Thanks so much, Bob Pisani. Coming up, more of my exclusive interview with Endeavor's Ari Emanuel, WWE's Vince McMahon. The two hammering out that big deal. Emerge UFC with the WWE. It's next on The Half. Welcome back to Halftime. Both Endeavor and WWE shares lower this hour on news that Endeavor will merge its UFC brand with the WWE. 
forming a new company that will eventually go public on the New York Stock Exchange. The transaction values the so far unnamed company at some $21 billion, $12 billion for the UFC, $9.3 billion for the WWE. That is a substantial premium over WWE's current $6.5 billion market cap. Now, after the deal closes, expected in the fourth quarter, Endeavor will hold a 51% controlling interest in the new enterprise, while existing WWE shareholders will hold a 49% interest. I asked Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel and WWE founder Vince McMahon how this all happened during our exclusive interview on Sunday in Los Angeles. This is the biggest thing Ari Emanuel and Vince McMahon have ever done. Yeah. Combining forces like this is there's nothing like this. There's never been anything like this. People have been talking about this for a long time. There were this, a lot of other suitors sure they here. Were, you know, but Ari, really, the synergies, everyone was, was very interested in us, and, and I appreciate that. But the synergies that Ari brings, totally different than everyone else. That said, many doubted we would ever see this day that you would ever be willing to sell a controlling stake in right. your company. Right. You are the WWE, and the WWE is you. So why? Uh, it's, it, it's the right time. It's the right time to do the right thing. And it's the next evolution of WWE. I could probably do what Ari is right now with UFC. It'd take me 10 years. You know, By the time I would grab those 10 years, you'd be 10 years ahead again. <laughs> so it's like, it makes all the sense in the world for all these synergies that we have. You know, to extract all of the value we can out of the marketplace. The deal values UFC, you mentioned some numbers, $12 billion and WWE at $9.3 billion. That's a big number. Well, here's the WWE's market cap is six and a half. Here's what I would say to you. Exactly why we did this, because I think we weren't getting the pure value. I don't think the WWE was no, getting we the pure value. Combined, it's, uh, it's rarefied air the two of us. And I think the analysts will be able to do it. It's good for the shareholders of WWE and for the shareholders of, of Endeavor. And then when you look back, I don't believe that the Endeavor shareholders were getting pure play for the rest of the asset that we had. And I think for the first time, you now have the ability to do that in both situations. And that's a win-win, which is what Vince and I have always talked about. When I throw those kind of numbers out to you, I mean, the, the word on the street was that you wanted $9 billion. This values the WWE at 9.3. Right. So despite everything that's happened. I'm a visionary. Well, you hit the number. <laughs> yes. Deservedly so. But here's what I would also say to you. We paid a fair price. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we paid a little bit for control premium. Um, with our cost cuts, their new deals coming up, which is right now. Um, and um, our cost savings that we think we can extract from the business right now and grow the business with all of our levers, whether it be international sales, domestic, sponsorship, gambling, all the things that we do, um, I think it's right. I would also say to you is when I bought IMG, everybody said I overpaid. It was actually one of the cheapest deals in sports. For sure, when I bought the UFC, everybody was like at $4.2 They were like crazy. We've tripled uh, the EBITDA in that period of time. And now with this, this is gonna be UFC 2.0 um, as it relates to all the things in the flywheel that we can bring um, to them. And we have unbelievably attractive economics. The balance sheet's incredible. Our uh, debt ratio is less than three times. Our free cash flow conversion is unbelievable. 
So I think when people look at this business on a combined basis and also look at the remaining assets for both shareholder, it's incredible. Now, the new company will have Mr. Emanuel as CEO with current WWE CEO Nick Khan staying on as president of the brand. Dana White continuing as president of the UFC, while Mark Shapiro assumes the role of president and COO of both Endeavor and the new company. The wild card throughout the bidding process was what role, if any, WWE founder Vince McMahon would play in a new company after a sexual misconduct scandal. McMahon was forced to retire thereafter. He left the company for nearly six months before returning to help lead a potential transaction. Most had assumed McMahon would leave altogether if a deal happened. He is staying on as executive chairman of the board at the behest of Emmanuel himself. Even so, I asked McMahon about the emotions of parting with a business his father founded in 1953 and whether the scandal that rocked the WWE and McMahon himself ultimately led to this moment. I can't help but wonder, and I have to ask you, had the scandal not happened, right. would we be sitting here today? Absolutely. Why? Because it makes sense. You take, nothing's ever happened like this before. And again, I'm always looking what's best for our stockholders, what's best for the company. This is the best thing that's happened in a long, long time. All of the WrestleManias combined have been 39, including uh, tomorrow. Um, does it really equal to the magnitude of, of what we will do together? Did that event push you towards this day faster than you thought you'd ever be here? Um, no, it didn't really in and of itself, no. But uh, it's great that we can combine all of this news together at the same time. Is this a good day for good Vince day. McMahon and it's the WWE? A, it or is it a is great it a, day. Is it a tough the greatest day as well? Life. This, this company's been in your family for 70 years. Mm -hmm. Is it a tough day? No, it's a great day. You know, things have to evolve. Family, business, it all has to evolve for all the right reasons. And this is the right business decision. Thus far, it's the right family decision. I want to ask you about how you think about your legacy, given where you took this company, mm -hmm. what's happened in the last year, the regrets you may have as a result of all that, and how you think your legacy will and your story will be told. Well, let me just say it, I've made mistakes, obviously, you know, both personally and professionally through my 50-year career. I've owned up to every single one of them and then moved on. I'm not sure, you know, the legacy stuff, I'm not going to write it. So I don't know. You know, I want to say it's someone who had an extraordinary amount of fun, great passion for what they did, and wound up doing the biggest deal he's ever done in his life. More particulars on the deal. Eleven new board members will be appointed at a later date. Six chosen by Endeavor, five by the WWE. Front and center will now be renegotiating the WWE's television rights with partners NBC and Fox, set to expire in the fall of 2024. You heard Ari Emanuel mention the balance sheet of Endeavor. He did reiterate to me his commitment to continuing, continuing deleveraging Endeavor's balance sheet, something Wall Street analysts have been keen to see. And one more very important note, I'm personally represented by WME. It is a unit of Endeavor, a talent agency that represents several CNBC anchors and on-air reporters. Up next, speaking of entertainment giants, Disney's annual shareholder meeting kicking off top of the hour. There's some ownership on the desk. We get the setup next. Welcome back. 
Disney shareholder meeting about to kick off, and we do have a news alert regarding the media giant. Dom Chu with those details. And Dom, I... I didn't think we had heard the last of uh, Governor DeSantis versus Disney, have we? We have not. Uh, th that, to, to your point, that shareholder meeting kicking off in less than 10 minutes right now for Disney, juxtaposed with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a Republican, who has now issued a letter that I'm holding in my hands right now saying that they are going to fight Disney and the Reedy Creek Improvement District. That's the board that oversaw Disneyland's. You remember DeSantis had now, with the legislature, put in a new group to oversee that, while Disney kind of made a last-ditch effort to usurp some of those controls. Well, now Ron DeSantis' team is saying that they're going to fight that. They're going to look into the legality of some of those efforts. We'll continue to bring more headlines. But for right now, a spokesperson from DeSantis' office, Scott, I'll leave you with this, with this, says Disney is again fighting to keep its special corporate benefits and dodge Florida law. We are not going to let that happen quote unquote. I'll send things back over to you. OK. Uh, and a note, um, the executive producer of our new seven o'clock program with Brian Sullivan says they have Bridget Ziegler on tonight and she's on the Reedy Creek board. That should be quite interesting tonight. Uh, seven o'clock Eastern time. Don't miss that interview. All right. You own Disney. Quick I, comment. I mean, look, this is this is DeSantis testing Iger to see what he's going to do. He tested the last CEO and see what happened. The CEO was, you know, left. So I think this is, Iger's got to step up. There's so much noise going on here with Disney, but he's got to figure this out before he moves forward. Yeah, all right, final trades coming up next. All right, welcome back. Join me, 3 o'clock Eastern on Closing Bell, Cameron Dawson of New Edge. Stacey Raskin told you about the upgrade on Intel. He'll join us. And Matthew Boss, the top retailing analyst on Wall Street, will be here at Post 9 with me, and I hope you'll join me then. All right, let's do final trades. Liz Young, why don't you go first? My final is a sell, sell semiconductors. I think they got way overextended. If tech does go through a pullback, semis get hit harder than other industry groups. Okay. Stephen Weiss. I love that call, Liz. I love <laughs> Thank it. you. Sell the chips. Thank you. Yeah, I just like it. it uh, I'm going with UNH. You like having somebody else on the dark side? <laughs> I do, I do. Welcome to the dark side, Liz. You'll get enjoy it here. Thank you. I, I mean, don't know that I'm happy to be here, but. <laughs> Surratt? Chevron. Um, I like what I see in oil, and I think the stock uh, could go up from here. Second best performer on the Dow today as oil uh, rips a bit on that OPEC cut. All right, Joe. Should I check with Steve first before I get my final trade? Is that what we're doing? No, no he'll okay. open. You don't have to. Uh, he'll you don't have to. I'm going to comment anyway. When has that ever no, stopped? I'm somewhat surprised, and it's pretty impressive the strength that we're seeing in gold, even with oil now rallying as well. You would think you'd see a little bit of uh, a cross asset allocation. Still long the GLD? Still long GLD. I think okay. that's the right trade. Joe, right. I approve. You've had a great call on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. I'll see you on the Closing Bell Exchange now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.